From the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham, this is Due South on WUNC. I'm Leonida Inge. There's a new book out that I can't stop looking at and touching. It's the new Brownies book, celebrating the first magazine ever created for black children more than 100 years ago. It's called the Brownies book. So it was a launch pad for uh, some, some of our greatest literati's careers uh, embedded in this Brownies book. This hour will also feature the voices of black bookstore owners and the founder of the African American Literature Book Club. But first, in honor of this Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we remember his visit to Rocky Mount, North Carolina in November 1962. He gave a speech that had a similar refrain to the famous I Have a Dream speech recorded on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. several months later. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. The Reverend Omotolukun Omokunde was a 15-year-old student at Booker T. Washington High School in Rocky Mount when he got the chance to meet King and hear him speak using those same words. Little black boys and little black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and little white girls and walk the streets as brothers and sisters. I have a dream that one day, right here in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will meet at the table of brotherhood Knowing that out of one blood, God made all men to dwell upon the face of earth. I have a dream that one day men all over this nation will recognize. Wow, that gave me chills. <laughs> I don't know about you. So please tell me, Dr. Omakunde, um, tell me about that night. Well, that night would have to take, would have to go back about a month before that night. Miss Esmerella Hawking world history teacher. And so what she did for me was made me then the top student in world history. Now, what happened? There was a contest. The winner was already set for the contest. I think it was rigged. I won, and the late Dr. Brenda Armstrong won. Oh, I know Brenda Armstrong from Duke University. Yes, Brenda was the valedictorian of our class. Yes. Brenda was my heart. We went to Mount Pisgah Presbyterian Church together. And so Miss Hawkins loved this little chocolate boy that she had taught world history. Her thing was education would take you places where they won't tease you, but you'll be teaching them. So November 27, 1962, Miss Hawkins, when you shall have finished this experience, you will be the better for it. And she taught me how to put the endings on words so that I could speak better. Because I had preached my first sermon at 12 years old in Mount Pisgah. So you already knew you wanted to be. Right. And so, and so then my, aunt, my grandmama washed, starched, and ironed my underwear. I had a starch Because you were going to see Dr. Martin Luther King. I didn't know that. They my, knew it, my though, uncle, didn't they? My, my uncle Lindbergh, Charles Lindbergh, to be a fact, Stith, S-T-I-T-H, 
came and told me to come with him. My other uncle, Thomas Stiff, got me a new suit from Rosenblum Levy, the most prestigious store in Rocky Mountain. And I had this blue suit. And my uncle taught me how to tie a Windsor knot with a white shirt and a dark tie and a handkerchief in my pocket, a squared handkerchief. And I had old new Buster Brown shoes. Yep. She put olive oil in my full head of hair and made waves go to the side rather than front and the back. And I went and I met Miss Hawkins and my, my buddy, Dr. Brenda Armstrong, at the door of the library of Booker T. Washington. And Miss Armstrong opened the door and walked in and there sat Dr. Martin Luther King. And for an hour, Brenda and I interviewed Dr. King and had a conversation with Dr. King. And so somehow I became a great philosopher at that <laughs> at time. At 15. At 15, I said, Dr. King, uh, let's revisit the, the Mahatma Gandhi uh, uh, era in your life. And why would you choose this person with a little cloth on to be assembled for what you wanted to do? I said, wait a minute, Miss Hawkins, I'm talking to King now. But anyway, <laughs> oh, Brenda will get back imagine. to you. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. I was so elated. Brenda had a uh, Coca-Cola with a straw in it and a napkin because that's what ladies did. Boys didn't drink out of straws in North Carolina in 1962. So I had a, I had a, I had a whole Coke. Harris had a straw in it and a napkin. Uh, Miss Hawkins had coffee and Dr. King had coffee. Well, I, little did I know that when we walked out, I didn't know what was going on. I knew world history, but I didn't know current history, obviously. But I knew something was going on because folks started talking. It, there was a buzz in the African-American community mm. that King is coming. We walked out, and the audience was in the Booger T. Gym. Uh, on stage was Dr. James H. Coston, my pastor at Mount Pisgah, who baptized me. And my grandmama was there. Big Mama was there. My Uncle Barry was there. My Uncle uh, Bro was there. All of my all uncles, I think, were there. My aunts were there. And I was walking in, and as I walked, I walked almost towards the stage. I, I thought I was <laughs> going to be on the dice, but the ushers, the church police. Yeah, the church police. The, the church police it. said, your grandmama's sitting over there, boy. They're going in there. And sit down and act like you got some sense. Okay. It wasn't so I did. But I was walking on cloud nine. I was elated because King was like an uncle or a daddy that was right. From that time on, I knew that no matter what I did, uh, being a preacher was going to be part of it. I became a Martin Luther King follower at that, at that point. It changed your life. It changed my life. And the kids just thought I was, I was, I, I was it. I was a... Uh, you know, I was a. So it sounded like it sounds like you already had the big head, but now you were walking a little taller. I think walking a little taller. Yes. But what Miss Esmerella Hawkins told me, you are going to Johnson C. Smith University, and you're going to get an education, and you're not going to let anybody tell you anymore that you what you cannot do. So Miss Esmerella Hawkins put me on on that straight and narrow. Miss Melva Coston. And Miss Gay was doing the cooking, the steaks and everything for King to eat that evening. And, you know, they had to sneak King into town. And so what the password was, the black 
Blackberry pie is ready. Blackberry pie is ready. Blackbird? Blackberry pie. Blackberry pie, pie is, is ready. ready. And that's when he called his wife, Dr. Melba Costum, to let him know to prepare the food and everything, and also that they got him in safely. Mm-hmm. Dr. King made me want to go to school. Uh, so I, I went, I, so I went to Johnson C. Smith because they said I was going to Johnson C. Smith, and that's where the Presbyterian preachers went to Johnson C. Smith. Now, this is a very serious question I have to ask you because I wonder if 15-year-olds now across North Carolina or even the country, you know, or even let's just say in Rocky Mount, North Carolina, got to hear Martin Luther King's speech that he gave when you were 15 mm-hmm. years old, like how would it affect them and change their lives? I wonder if 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 school children are hearing those words in school anymore. I know some school districts across the country, they probably would not, you know, play that speech. Like but... Florida. Uh, let me explain something to you. It's not the school children's fault. It's what we put on the tape that counts for them. It's what we say. We have to understand the historical nature. We did not start in slavery, but we were brought here to, because white people didn't want to do their own work. Now, that's a, a political statement. They don't have that background of history. They don't have Miss Esmerella Hawkins anymore. Never give up on, on our children. Uh, I have that integrity burnt into my soul because of Miss Hawkins, because of Brenda, and because of a lot of, you know, other folk in Rocky Mount. I call Rocky Mount the Holy Land. For you, me, it was the Holy Land. You had a great village there. Yeah. A village that um, allowed you to meet Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Yes, <laughs> in person. Amazing. Today, the Reverend Omotolokun Omokunde is 76 years old and lives in Oxford, North Carolina, a retired pastor of Timothy Darling Presbyterian Church. He is a proud graduate of Johnson C. Smith University, the Interdenominational Theological Center in Atlanta, and Virginia Union University. Special thanks to NC State Professor Jason Miller for his role in discovering the long-lost recording of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech in Rocky Mount. Coming up, the new Brownies book, inspired by W.E.B. Du Bois more than 100 years ago. You're listening to Do South on WUNC. You're listening to Due South on WUNC. 
I'm Leonida Inge. Miss Mary Mac, 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 all dressed in black, 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 with silver buttons. The first magazine ever created for black children was published in January 1920. It was called The Brownies Book, a monthly magazine for children of the sun. And it was the brainchild of sociologist, scholar, and activist W.E.B. Du Bois. More than 100 years later, the Brownies book is still being discussed, studied, and celebrated, most recently with the publication of a new anthology inspired by the original. The new Brownies book, A Love Letter to Black Families, is the brainchild of Dr. Carita L. Brown, a professor of sociology at Emory University, and Charlie Palmer, painter, graphic designer, illustrator, and also Carita's husband. Carita and Charlie, welcome. Thank you. Hi. It's a pleasure to be here. It's, a, it's my pleasure because I just want to let you know how beautiful this book is before even thumbing through the pages, just looking at the cover um, of this book. Um, it really stands out, and I hope you're really proud of it. You know, the original Brownies book was a fascinating history. It was only published for one year from January 1920 to December 1921. You know, it featured the work from some of the most prominent Black intellectuals of the time. So I like to talk about, you know, the history of that periodical, some of its famous contributors, and how it really inspired you to start this this new collection. So the Brownies book, as you mentioned, Leonida, was founded by not only W.E.B. Du Bois, who was at the time the editor-in-chief of the Crisis magazine, um, but also a few of his colleagues at the NAACP, uh, Jesse Redmond Fawcett and Augustus Granville-Dill. They worked as an editorial team to bring the Brownies book to life, which was conceptualized as a periodical centering what Du Bois called Children of the Sun. So the original Brownies book, um, you know, was typeset in color and, and um, issued every other month and was formatted very similar to the Crisis magazine, but geared towards a young audience. And it was so important because it was the first of its kind to feature black children, um, you know, in a, in a positive light. I know it's supposed to be for young readers. <laughs> Maybe for children, um, not like the crisis. We know the seriousness of that, but I think a lot of parents probably read it as well, if not to their children, right? I, I would imagine that. I, I think uh, one of the things that's very important about the book itself, we we do see it as a family a family book. There's something there for everyone in every age. Um, I think that, uh, and actually having opportunities to see behind a glass one of the original copies of the Brownies magazine, you could see the quality of the color and the well illustrated and how well the type was set. So it was quite an inspiration to have a chance to, to see that in New York recently. It was our very first time actually laying eyes on a, a, an original copy of it. And what's fascinating about the original Brownies book, there's so many things that were uh, groundbreaking and important uh, about the periodical, but one of those things was that it was really a call and response. So while uh, Du Bois and the editorial team certainly um, um, published editorial uh, pieces in the book, it was mainly comprised of contributions from other writers 
an artist who uh, soon became the literati of the Harlem Renaissance. So there are contributions by folks like Nella Larson and Harry Burley. Also, Du Bois made sure to publish young and up-and-coming Black creatives. One young man in particular, um, who was 19 or 20 at the time, sent some of du, sent Du Bois some of his work and said, "I want to. I'm interested in being a writer. Um, would you take a look at my work?" Du Bois thought the work was quite good and published it. And that writer was Langston Hughes. He, in fact, had his first uh, pieces published in the Brownies book. Um, and so it was a launch pad for uh, some some of our greatest literati's careers um, uh, embedded in this Brownies book. You know, Charlie, I'd like you to talk a little bit about how this book looks and feels. I know before even opening the book, you know, my mouth sort of dropped open. I said, wow, how lovely. And really, just how does it look and feel? And then how did it make you feel when you got it back from the the publishers, when you saw your work? You know, so uh, a funny story is that we had to reenact uh, because uh, we didn't have actual video of the—actually, we, we do have video of the actual opening. We had no clue when we saw the um, the early layout of it that it was going to have that gold on the very front of it and on, on the side of it and, and the back of it. But we knew and we've seen how people have responded to the cover before they ever opened the book. And so we were very excited about the idea that people are responding by looking at this gorgeous image of this young lady as an angel. But uh, once you start to dig into this book, it is like uh, I, I've heard it by other participants that are part of the the, the, uh, the Brownies book, some of the contributing artists as well as writers, that this is one of the most important projects they've ever been involved with. I've had the opportunity to do a lot of things in my lifetime, and I can comfortably say this is the thing that I'm the most proud of, of anything I've ever done before. Wow. How did it make you feel, Corita? I mean, it is, it was, it's so regal. And when we pulled the book, the early copies that we got out of the box, seeing that the book is literally wrapped in gold, it just uh, took, took my breath away. I think that it is just absolutely uh, top notch. And shout out to Chronicle Books, our publisher, because they made that uh, decision to put it in a premium package. And that says a lot about what how, how the publisher feels about uh, this book for its year's lineup. Um, but it's absolutely gorgeous. It's meant to be a family heirloom. This book is meant to be on the coffee table of every family in the country, uh, Charlie will probably say around the world. So, and it and it looks like it should be. It's a work of art and uh, filled with creative genius. So the cover is just that invitation for the joy and level of genius and creativity that you're going to experience when you uh, open it up and start to engage with some of the stories and fine art that's within the pages of the Brownies book. So you mean that we're not going to get one every other month? <laughs> I mean, I thought, I thought you were going to keep up that tradition. No, but I, I, you know I understand. What, you know, but one of the things that, that Karita has addressed, and I, it's like I think that's how she originally discovered the Brownies book, was he, she was seeing correspondence between the boys and children because he took the time to respond to children often 
And this is like the call and response. If you look at this book, and as we've gone through it, we realized that perhaps what we need to do now, and that's why we've started to engage young people as well as adults in trying to connect with their younger self, is like perhaps there's a follow-up where we can write something and share images of how people are responding to this love letter to Black families. You know, Karita, you're a sociologist, and I know there are historical parallels between like the original Brownies book and this new collection and how the original book came out, what, just months after the red summer of 1919 Mm. when race riots and lynchings were rampant, you know, across the country. So how does that sort of echo some of the events that um, were occurring while you assembled this new Brownies book? You know, the history of racial violence in the U.S. is as old uh, and older than the founding of the country itself. So that's a thread that's been in the backdrop of Black American life since Black America has has existed. With the, the timing of the launch of the original Brownies book um, and the launch of the new Brownies book um, nearly 100 years later, it's just ironic that they both come at the heels of two major flashpoints in racial violence in the U.S. Uh, For us, we started to seriously solicit contributions from authors in 2020. And this was perhaps a month or two after George Floyd's murder. It was also during a time where we were, most of us were all shut in the house due to COVID. And we had, did not have a clear sense of how long that shut-in would be. So many of our contributors had that on their mind. It certainly was on my mind and Charlie's mind as we were activating the process of producing the works for the book. Um, And when we say a collective love letter to Black families, the creators who contributed to the book certainly were trying to pour into, um, pour love back to Black children and families in a time of urgency, crisis, and despair. However, I think it's really important to um, put it out there that Charlie and I conceived of this book in 2017. Wow. When we first started to, we weren't even really dating yet, right, babe? Like kind of figuring it out. We were dating. (laughs) Okay, we were dating. And, um, And we... We would always be in these deep conversations just about our shared interest in Black history and culture, creativity, writing, literature, art. And Charlie asked me, if you were to do a children's book, what would what would your children's book be? And I ended up taking a little time and writing them back and saying, well, I wouldn't create a new book. I would revive the Brownies book. And in that email to Charlie, I told him a little bit about the Brownies book. I sent him the link to the original, um, you know, so he could do some research on that. And I said, this is an heirloom to all African-Americans and we should do this. So that really birthed the idea of and doing this book. that's a great date conversation. That's mm-hmm. how you lure her in, Charlie. You know, that's how... <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we talk about pickup lines all the time. And that's how you not, do it. I have no game. And so it, it really was, and that's the thing about us in general, uh, Karita and myself, is that we have constant stimulating conversations. And that that just happened to be one 
that led to the birth of this book that is very important to us. You know, this is definitely a love letter. When I think about the past few years of the pandemic and children not being able to be children, um, and I keep hearing reports about how even some children, you know, those big standardized tests and those scores of the third graders, how they're behind. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow, what? how are we going to recoup those years? How How is that going to be done? Karita points to me and says, you answered this one. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I think um, with this book being such a celebration, what we're attempting to do is to let these young people know how brilliant and how amazing they truly are. Because um, I don't think... And this is not about their parents not feeding that information to them, but the world is not feeding that information to them. I think that even a lack of development has a lot to do with not enough stimulation. And so one of the things that this book is, and I'm proud to say that, it, it stimulates thought and it stimulates conversation. It stimulates laughter. It will make you cry. It will make you feel alive. And I think that those are the kinds of things that motivate change and growth and the desire. And so I would hope that even young people, something like this would encourage them to step it up. Uh, We believe in you. We have confidence in you and, you know, go after it. And I think that that becomes very important. But when it comes to the fact that, yes, uh, what was happening with the pandemic and everyone falling behind, do we need to catch up? I think that one of my beliefs have always been that the pandemic was a, a restart it was a reboot. It was an opportunity to change some of the things in the system that we've gotten used to. And so I think that maybe this also inspires more change. You know, art is so important to this project. I mean, before even reading the words, I mean, a child of any age, first of all, this book, it harkens back. It's like an encyclopedia. Like, you know, it's big, you know, it's broad. <laughs> it looks like it should be on a shelf and used as a reference book almost. And But the pictures, the artwork, amazing. I mean, I think one of my favorites is, I have my book here. <laughs> I, I definitely love the piece of art that's included um, called School Girls mm. and oh, the essay yes. about historically black colleges and, and universities. Le- Leonard Maiden. Uh-huh. Le- Le- Leonard Maiden. See, so one of the things that I'm, I'm going to jump in this right now so mm-hmm. I can, because Karita always says this, and I'm like, I don't agree with you. She said, uh, and because there are several letters from Du Bois, because keep in mind that the uh, contributors were not being compensated. So these writers mm-hmm. and these artists and everything that were giving to the Brownies book he would reach out to them with letters or a telegram saying, I'm expecting your best work. But it was an ask. It, uh, it wasn't a demand. But who would say no to Du Bois? You no know, one. if you get a letter from him. And so they, so they did constantly give their very best. And so like, with, like that Leonard Maiden is actually a painting that we own. Um, and so we were looking at it. And when it came to the idea of who and what was going to go into this book, we know we— we know of so many writers and artists that weren't even able to be a part of this because it was so much of a wealth of uh, resources that we had. But we did the same thing where we reached out and we asked for them to give your best work. What's your message to black children? Now, we did pay them a little something. We <laughs> yeah, weren't we we like Du Bois right. saying we can't give you nothing. But, you know, and the, the look, work on, is... look and listen to those years. Those were like depression years about to kick in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those were hard times and still a need for this book. Yeah. 
And you're absolutely right. The artwork is stunning. And we were surprised by so much of the, um, the, by many of the pieces that came in. So we did not specify to the artist or the authors exactly what we wanted from them or what form we wanted it to be. So when the pieces started to come in, it was like Christmas over and over again. We got, right. we were opening up gifts, um, learning that some of the scholars who contributed work wrote poetry. I didn't know that. <laughs> I didn't know that uh, we've got historians and political scientists and anthropologist uh, professors who contributed to the book, um, but they used different forms than, they, than we've seen them publish on, um, you know, to express themselves for the Brownies book. So it's not just the lineup of contributors, creatives that we have in the book. It's also uh, some of the work that they've uh, uh, lent to this book is never before seen in that form. And I think that that's really powerful as well. Well, you know, um, our conversation has to wrap up soon, but I definitely wanted to ask, you know, ask you the question about books, especially black children and how, you know, children of color have been, you know, books for our children have been sort of under attack, you know, with these book bans in public right. schools across the country. And just what are your hopes for the new Brownies book use in schools and in educational spaces? One way that I hope that it's used uh, in this particular moment, uh, in this era of book banning and uh, censorship. We intentionally curated a book that um, demonstrates the full range of of the literary canon and the artistic canon. So in this one book, a child can experience short plays, essay form, long form stories, watercolor art, abstract art, figurative art, we made sure to show the breadth of, of form so that a child can like go so many places within this one book. It also taps into various facets of the human uh, you know, experience and the human condition. So we deal with everything from just silly, fun children's stories to you know, how do we deal with Harder, the, some of the harder facts of life, like losing loved ones and, and mourning. And what does that look like from a culturally specific standpoint? So that's the long way to answer your, to, to answer your question. We just hope that this book serves as a portal to allow children to go anywhere, to um, experience the full range of humanity through art and literature, unbounded, through this collective love letter that is the new Brownies book. Well, I can definitely tell it's been a passion of love. Dr. Corita L. Brown is a professor of sociology at Emory University. Charlie Palmer is a fine artist, graphic designer, and illustrator. They are the authors of the new Brownies book, A Love Letter to Black Families. Corita and Charlie, thank you so much for being on Due South. Thank you. Thank you. This Mary Next up on Due South, a chat about the enduring importance of black bookstores, featuring the founders of the only black-owned children's bookstore in North Carolina. You're listening to Due South.
This is Due South on WUNC. I'm Jeff Tabiri. How do you find books to read these days? If you're younger, maybe it's a favorite influencer or reader you keep up with on social media. If you're old school, maybe you like to walk through the aisles of a real, in-the-flesh bookstore. From library cards to Kindle subscriptions, there are plenty of ways to read. However, there are not necessarily plenty of spaces dedicated to black literature. There are at least three black-owned bookstores in North Carolina. And in a bit, we'll chat with Victoria Scott Miller and her son Langston, co-founders of the first black-owned children's bookstore in the state. First, let's turn our ears toward Troy Johnson. He's the president and founder of the African American Literature Book Club. And just note here, I might say AALBC at points in this conversation. Troy is an avid reader. In 2008, he quit his corporate job to run the oldest, largest, and most frequently visited website dedicated to books by people of African descent. Troy, welcome to Do South. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really excited to talk to you all. So this became your full-time labor of love slash job 15 years ago. You started the website a generation ago. Tell us why. Yeah, literally a generation ago. So I started building websites in the mid-90s for other businesses, and I decided to create a website to sell things so that I could better advise my clients. At the time, barnesandnoble.com had an affiliate program, and so I mm-hmm. created a web page, put some books up, Again, it was an experiment to learn. But as soon as I did that, I discovered the world of books. I mean, it's, 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 it might sound counterintuitive coming from someone who has two graduate degrees, but the, the world of books largely escaped me. They, I was learning about things after I started the website that I was just completely oblivious to. You know, I didn't mm-hmm. know the scope and depth of, for example, the Harlem Renaissance, and I grew up in Harlem. I wasn't aware of... Um, you know, all of the great literature that was out there, I wasn't aware of the historical literature. I wasn't aware of the contemporary literature. It, you know, my world just opened up and I became my, you know, my best customer. You know, I was just really passionate about what I was discovering and I wanted to share it with others. You mentioned the Harlem Renaissance, right? And you 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 mentioned all of these important literary figures and in, in chapters. Just because you started a website doesn't necessarily mean they're going to follow. Like, what was it that led you uh, to learn uh, about these things that had escaped you? You know, so it, again, that, learning about black history and not just um, the history from the very uh, narrow, you know, history of MLK, I Have a Dream, but really learning more about uh, Martin Luther King and all the other civil rights activists that we don't hear much about you know, just discovering those. And, you know, it, so really all of it. I mean, yeah. it just, it, there was just, and, and it, you know, it sounds odd to even say this, but I also discovered there just wasn't a lot out there at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, when I first started the website, I realistically felt like I could find every book that was published. So every book written by or about a black person, I felt that I knew about it. That would be virtually impossible today. Or sure. in the in the late '90s, early 2000s, yeah, I could say that. And, and I witnessed an explosion of writers. Actually, you know, there was a you know a critical point where there were three uh, black authors on the New York Times bestsellers list at mm-hmm. one time, and that heralded an era where there was really just an explosion of of new writers. Writers and writing in all genres, from you know Chicklet and 
urban fiction and erotica and mm-hmm. just the whole gamut. And, um, you know, it told the industry that, you know, black people do read because one of the other things I discovered was the idea that, you know, there really is an, audi- an audience for books within the black community. And today we know that, you know, black women, for example, probably read more than any other group. Troy Johnson is your guest here on Do South. He's the president and founder of the African-American Literature Book Club, AALBC.org. And he's joining us on the line from public radio member station WUSF in Tampa, Florida. Troy's going to stick around as we welcome in two more voices. Langston Miller is a seventh grader, and he's here with his mom, Victoria. They co-founded Liberation Station. It's in downtown Raleigh, and it is the first and only Black-owned children's bookstore in North Carolina. And I should note, one of just three, Victoria noted before we uh, hit record here in the studio, three Black-owned children's bookstores in the country. We'll get to kind of that uh, amazing figure, and not in a good way, in a minute. Hey there. How are y'all? Thanks for being here. Good. Good. Thank you for having us. Thank you. A few years ago, y'all didn't find the options that you, you thought were sufficient, that you were looking for when you went into a bookstore. And not only did you take your business elsewhere, you created a business. Tell us a little a bit about the, you know, the beginning here. So we were at a, a crossroads, my family and I, you know, it's a family of four. So my husband, uh, Langston, and our youngest son, Emerson, we um, were just getting out of the, the military. Um, my husband was, you know, a nuclear engineer on a submarine. And we were at the intersection of, you know, my husband being overqualified and not being able to find employment. And then, you know, I'm a stay-at-home mother nurturing our children. And, you know, growing up, we always heard about, like, what our parents are going through in that moment. And sometimes that can compromise you know, the imaginative curiosity of children. And Langston was wanting to write comic books. And I remember very vividly, he stated that he wanted it to look like a lemonade stand and he wanted to put his books up. And we didn't want to compromise his, you know, imaginative curiosity. So we went to Barnes & Noble as a family Mm -hmm. and we said, you know, The biggest thing is, like, placement. Where are you going to find your book? Where can it be housed amongst all of the the writers that are echoing the stories that you wish to tell? And it took us, you know, about five, would you say five hours? I think so. Like four or five hours, you know, to be able to find books that represented the stories that he wanted to tell. Um, The scavenger hunt part, I think, was a very starking reality that something needed to, to change. Even still, you now have to navigate the uh, financial component of it, uh, funding a business. I don't know. You have to you have to gather books. You have to find a space that is good. That's going to have good foot traffic. Yeah. Are you are you do you have a business background? How did you go like that to me? I think about this and I'm like, that must have been overwhelming. It's one thing to say, I want to I want to create a space where more people can be seen. Sure. And it's another thing to say, I'm going to actually create that space. Yeah. So, I mean, we were we looked at the the spaces and we said, you know, would we be able to financially um, sustain, you know, a physical space? And we just assessed that it would not be possible. But we are 
innovators and innovation often comes from a place of lack. And so by not having those resources immediately available, we decided to use the one thing that has carried us through, you know, um, being a military family, being pregnant and with our two children. And it was our 2011 Chevy Cruze. And that would become like our first storefront. And that would be our pop-up model. So we would literally go from place to place all throughout Raleigh, Durham, the Triangle, and we would set up shop and meet people where they were. Um, we believed enough in making these stories available to the children that deserve them the most that, you know, we took an uncompromising approach to to do that type of legwork in the beginning, and that was in 2019. Tell me about this name, Liberation Station. Where did it come from? What's the story there? Part of our journey, it deals with, like, my father and his background and drug addiction and, you know, all all of these things. Um, and so part of the name Liberation Station um, was in our ability as parents to say no to almost a multi-million dollar offer that we received. I just want to I want to run with it for a minute, if that's OK. Sure. Make sure I understand it correctly. So there are some papers of Frederick Douglass's which are in your family's possession. They're a family heirloom of some yes. sort. Yes. So, well, they are the letters of Nathaniel Knight, who was oddly a white bookstore owner in Justice of the Peace in Fells Point, Baltimore. Um, he's also responsible for um, giving Frederick Douglass a copy of the Columbian Order, which he notes in his autobiography of being one of the pieces of literature that kind of just changed um, his anger mm -hmm. um, into a certain level of understanding coming out of slavery. And so we've had these papers in our family. I'm 37 now, so we've had them in, in our family for literally 37 years. My mother did not know who they belonged to. Um, mm -hmm. They found them in the bottom of a basement when they were living in Philadelphia. And wow. in this basement, they would just kind of throw all the, the, the artifacts of people who just kind of unclaimed things after they passed away. And these papers were there. They were inside of a Bible trimmed in gold. And my mom put them in the only preservation method that she knew at the time, which was Ziploc bags. <laughs> and so it would be, you know, 2017 after my father's passing that mm -hmm. we would have access to these, you know, papers again. And my mom said, you know, y'all look like y'all could put this on a gallery wall and do something with it. So I'm going to gift those to you. And my husband and I began to get really curious about some of the signatures and names that were kind of mm -hmm. lifting themselves off of the page. And we ended up um, going through, you know, historian, we went through, you know, Sotheby's and went through all these different channels to authenticate, you know, these yeah. papers. And so we had $250 in our account at the time of this offer. And we said no. And, and so we thought that if this narrative was worth this much, then I wonder what we would be able to do with what we have. And part of that, I would have to say, um, was my husband. You can imagine the conversations we were having with, a, you know, nearly a multi-million dollar offer. This would solve all of our problems. Uh, I can. <laughs> you know, and, I, and, the, and the conversations were like, you know, yeah, let's go ahead and sell them. We're good. We can get a house. We can get land. And he said, yeah, it'll be able to do all of that for us, but only for one generation. So let's see what we can do with what we have. Mm. And um, we went on a discounted book website and we just picked all the books that we felt represented, you know, um, our people in all of their glory that weren't based in trauma and 
decided to start a bookstore, a pop-up bookstore, and and have, you know, Langston write the comic book sketches that he began writing, you know, when he was nine. And today, Liberation Station has a, a, a brick-and-mortar location. Yeah. T- tell me about the space. So it is a beautiful 364-square-foot space. Um, it is located inside of an old department store building. It's a historic building. Um, and as soon as you come into our building on the first floor, you are greeted with all of the uh, protest artwork from George Floyd's uh, murder. Mm. Uh, the space is also divided up into four different sections. We have our diaspora wall. So we have books that are sourced from Haiti, Brazil, West Africa, South Africa. And then on the other side is our America wall. So those are Black authors, Black illustrators, and Black-led publishing houses, whether mm-hmm. it be small press or the Big Five. And then we have our banned book wall, um, whether it's banned in a classroom prison or uh, library. And then we have our anchor section where we have paired an adult title with a children's book title with overarching uh, with the same theme. So you can have an intergenerational conversation. And I do want to mention one very important component of our store is our Braille wall. So we have a Braille wall that has affirmations that were made in mustard seeds so that we can also cater to our visually impaired children as well. Who frequents your store? Wow. Um, is so, it young? Is it old? Is it black? Is it white? Is it brown? Is it uh, you? To be me. honest, yeah. to, so interestingly enough, when we had pop ups, I would say that ninety percent of our consumer base uh, were white women. Mm. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, ninety percent. Nearly ninety percent. Yeah. yeah, it is uh, significant. Um, but something about having roots and the predictability of us being housed um, in a location where we can have you know continued access, um, that percentage has nearly flipped. Um, and so we find, you know, it's, and I always say it's gloriously black uh, now. So we have, you know, black and brown children coming, uh, families coming, um, which has been incredible to see. I want to, uh, I guess, hear from both of you. Sure. Troy's still on the line and, uh, and, and we're here obviously talking about a bookstore in Raleigh, but I'm going to hit you all with some quick hitters. Um, if that's okay. So, one book you're reading right now. Troy? I just finished Disintegration. Um, I actually finished reading, we read as a family stamped for the first time. And that is a heavy one, but it's it was incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, favorite public library that you've ever visited? I would say the Brooklyn Public Library. Yeah. Primarily because, I mean, we recently saw the Jay-Z exhibit. So, yeah, yeah incredible. <laughs> um, partial to the Queens Public Library because of all the tremendous services they provide um, mm-hmm. the community. This is one from our executive producer, Aaron Kiever. I like this one a lot. How do we get more people to love reading? I would probably say introducing more books to the part. Like, if someone didn't like to read, I would say introducing more books to them. And, you know, maybe if they have a phone, less social media and having more books around them because then eventually that will make them want to read. I've always enjoyed reading, so that one was a little tricky for me to answer. Mom, sure. do you have any input? Um, I, I mean, I I think you've, you've taught me to appeal to the interests of the child, so not necessarily always focusing on reading 
as much as the interest itself. So I didn't know, like I said, until you got to middle school that a lot of children don't enjoy reading, but they enjoy reading comic books and they enjoy reading the manga titles that you've introduced. So really, I've learned a lot about like entering into their world, entering into your world and understanding how to expand from there. You answered the question, I believe. You know, so I'm just re-paraphrasing what you've said. Exposing people to um, good books. You know, mm-hmm. there, there's something out there for everyone. And the problem is getting that particular book, you know. So trying to help people find the books they're most likely to enjoy. And once they do that, enough times they will become lifelong lovers of, of books. Yo, thanks so much for speaking with us here on Do South. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you for having us. That was co-host Jeff DeBerry speaking with Troy Johnson, president and founder of the African American Literature Book Club. His website is aalbc.org. And Langston Miller and his mother, Victoria Scott Miller, founders of North Carolina's first Black-owned children's bookstore, Liberation Station, on Instagram at Liberation Station Bookstore. I'm Leonita Inge. This is Due South.